we need rules. And this administration simply won't give us those rules. And workers are paying the price with their lives. Well, maybe that's the point. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me. From bradblog.com, thank you for joining us for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast, your stay-at-home Radio Companion. That slogan may only apply in certain states at this point. <laughs> Especially sadly, the thrilling part. <laughs> shameful. Hey, <laughs> I heard that, Desi Doyen. All right, well, no matter what happens today, how thrilling or otherwise, we will end it with a song that may bring you a smile or two. Which I suspect we could all use uh, right around now. I know I certainly could. And we will be joined momentarily by the man who could if voters in Iowa are able to actually cast their votes this year. uh, Who could finally unseat the horrible nine-term white nationalist congressman Steve King in the state's fourth district which is now facing a uh, very serious crisis from COVID-19, thanks to the major conglomerate and often foreign-owned big ag companies who are endangering so many folks in so many of these small farming communities around the state. Meatpacking conglomerate JBS is a Brazilian-owned multinational company that brings in some $50 billion annually as the world's largest meat processor, according to Esther Honig and Ted Genoese at uh, Mother Jones. In recent weeks, they write today, there have been significant COVID-19 outbreaks at JBS's beef processing plants in Greeley, Colorado, Southerton, uh, Pennsylvania, Plainwell, Michigan, Green Bay, Wisconsin, Cactus, Texas, and Grand Island, Nebraska. Those account for six of the company's nine beef plants nationwide. Similar outbreaks have hit three of its five pork processing plants. 
At the same time, dozens of plants owned by other giant meat companies, including Tyson Foods and Smithfield, have seen horrific, seemingly uncontrolled outbreaks among their workers and, of course, in surrounding communities where the workers live and go home every night, spreading the disease unknowingly to their friends and family and neighbors. All told in the U.S., according to data collected by the Food and Environment Reporting Network, at least 99 meatpacking and processed food plants have confirmed cases of COVID-19, and at least 20 meatpacking plants and five processed food plants are currently closed. At least 6,832 workers are confirmed sick, and at least 25 have now died. In rural America, especially in the Midwest and Great Plains, meatpacking plants have emerged as the most significant COVID-19 hotspots. Honig and Genoa's report, more than 1,000 cases have been linked to one single Smithfield pork packing plant in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, over half of all cases in the entire state. Nonetheless, South Dakota's Republican Governor Kristi Noem has failed to issue a, stay, a statewide stay-at-home order throughout all of this and this still worsening crisis, despite pleas from Sioux Falls Republican mayor and many other local officials. The federal CDC and Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, issued recommendations for improved social distancing at the plants, use of face shields and other protective equipment, as well as better lines of communications with workers and their families at the plant in Sioux Falls and others like it. But they are just recommendations. They are not mandates. Dr. David Michaels is the longest-serving director of OSHA. He served in the Obama administration from 2009 to 2017. On C-SPAN's Washington Journal on Thursday, Dr. Michaels noted that the meatpacking industry has failed to comply with official CDC guidance for workplace safety in meatpacking plants. Why? Well, because the Trump administration's OSHA has chosen to make adherence to that CDC guidance voluntary instead of mandatory. It's up to the companies with just four big ag monopolies controlling 85 percent of the nation's beef and 50 plants producing 98 percent of the nation's supply. It's up to those companies whether they wish to follow the guidance or not. And you will be surprised to learn they haven't. Most employers are law-abiding, they want to follow the rules. And if OSHA says, this is what you must do, rather this is what you shall do, we'd be protecting millions and millions of workers and we would be reducing the incredible toll of this virus. But instead, OSHA is issuing guidance. It's saying, you know, here are some things we suggest you do, uh, but, not, but make it very clear that none of this guidance is enforceable. And I have to tell you, we have, you know, the numbers I've seen are 4,000, 5,000 sick meatpacking workers. We've known since the beginning of the epidemic how to control exposures, and we've had very good recommendations, but the meat industry has ignored them. The, the thousands of workers sick in the meatpacking industry are positive proof that guidance, that suggestions are not adequate. We, we need rules. And this administration simply won't give us those rules. And workers are paying the price with their lives. Meanwhile, 
As thousands of workers have been sickened and are literally dying, yes, paying the price with their lives while trying to stay on the lines and keep their jobs, as the industry keeps plants open, as many as they can, and forces workers to endure intolerably dangerous conditions, according to many reports of those still working there, at the same time, uh, we see wholesale beef prices uh, rising. Pork has disappeared from some grocery shelves in many locations. Capacity to slaughter and butcher cattle and hogs has dropped by more than 20% since early April, and experts warn of coming meat shortages across the country. John Tyson, the chairman of Tyson Foods, says the food supply chain is breaking. He wrote that in a full-page ad that ran in the Sunday edition of the New York Times on April 26, adding, We have a responsibility to feed our country. It is as essential as health care, he argued, even as his plants around the country are helping to run up actual essential health care bills and, yes, death rates. On Wednesday, Donald Trump signed an executive order that the press reported as intended to force open meatpacking plants using the Defense Production Act. But in fact, it does not actually force open meatpacking plants. It delegates to the Secretary of Agriculture and basically tells him to do something about the problem. It was, as David Dayan at the American Prospect notes, more of a typical PR ploy from Trump to show his base that he was working tirelessly to protect their precious hamburgers. But there was one part of the order worth highlighting, he observes. In the policy section, the order notes closure of a single large beef processing facility can result in the loss of over 10 million individual servings of beef in a single day. Just one plant. You may reasonably ask why we have created a situation where one processing plant due to an infectious disease can take that much food out of the system. Maybe that was the problem all along, writes Dayan. J.D. Shulton, Iowa's Democratic congressional candidate in the state's very Republican-leaning 4th Congressional District, agrees. He will be running against Iowa's longtime 4th District Republican Congressman Steve King for the second time this year after coming within three and a half points of unseating him in 2018. Shulton argues that it is time to use antitrust enforcement to break up ag monopolies and that that might help endangering the uh, food supply in cases like this. Shulton is a fifth-generation Iowan who nearly knocked off King with his people-powered grassroots campaign that fell just short in 2018 in a district that Donald Trump won by 27 points back in 2016. And he joins us now on the broadcast. J.D. Shulton, welcome, sir. Hey, Brad. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Glad to have you here. Uh, let me uh, cut right to the chase on this. How would enforcing antitrust laws already on the books uh, to help break up big, uh, big ag, big meat, I guess, these big monopolies, how would that help us to avoid the really unprecedented situation that we're now in with uh, thousands of workers getting sick and dying and the food supply chain itself now at risk if the uh, head of Tyson Foods is to be believed? Right. And we're a secure nation, or one of the reasons we're a secure nation is because we're a food secure nation. And we're getting dangerously close to being so concentrated that uh, we're very vulnerable. And, and this uh, pandemic has put a spotlight on that. Uh, when last year there was a, a fire at a slaughterhouse down in Kansas, and it disrupted most of the market 
and when we're so concentrated in just mm-hmm. the beef industry, uh, 50 plants control or produce 98% of our beef. Mm-hmm. And so if one plant goes down by, by any reason uh, or for any reason, that really hurts uh, the entire system. And so what I'm suggesting is that that's the first step. Mm-hmm. And we had this battle 100 years ago, and as a result, uh, we had the Packers and Stockyards uh, Act, mm-hmm. uh, and that was in 1921. And so next year, I hope to be my first year in Congress, will be the 100-year anniversary of that. And so what I'm suggesting is we already subsidize agriculture and we invest in agriculture. And so for pennies on the dollar, let's create a regional food system and an alternative. We can continue to what we're doing now, but, but we need to uh, have flexibility and adaptability. And we need to be able to remain a secure nation through our, our food security. Was it uh, not the case that we had such giant plants until we saw these uh, conglomerates come in and sort of monopolize? Uh, prior to that, was the meatpacking industry uh, smaller and uh, you know more disparate around the state and, and, and the uh, region there? Yeah, so when my grandparents were thriving on the farm uh, around the late 60s, early 70s, mm-hmm. there were nearly uh, 10,000 slaughterhouses in, in the nation mm-hmm. and now there's only a thousand really uh, yeah and and you know what sometimes uh it makes sense for efficiency and all that and technology has advanced so i get there that there needs to be some uh, uh consolidation but the the level that we're at is so far beyond uh even when upton sinclair wrote the jungle we're more concentrated now than back then mm. and uh it's one of those things where not only uh, everyone's talking about the workers, and, and absolutely, uh, mm-hmm. that the workers in, in these, and, and there's a uh, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist here in, in the district from Storm Lake, Iowa, named Art Cullen. Mm-hmm. And Art uh, wrote a beautiful piece uh, last week that referred to these folks as the patriotic, or the packing house patriots. Mm-hmm. And, and it's these folks who are going in and doing their job and supplying food for all of us. But it's it's one of those things where, as a nation, we're, we're getting dangerously close to exporting our agriculture system. Because mm-hmm. you look at one in four hogs in America is owned by China. Yeah. And China owns over 400 uh, farms in the USA and 33 processing plants. And one, the other side of this that no one's talking about, uh, the, not the worker side, but farmers, uh, there's a price-fixing issue that packers have because they're concentrated they've they've really squeezed the farmers for years yeah and we're getting dangerously close to bankrupting our uh beef producers and our hog uh, farmers and then forcing that uh those jobs to be in and uh those farms to be shipped uh, elsewhere mm-hmm. and and that's the part that i don't think uh gets enough attention in all of this and and so I think it's an opportunity coming out of this that workers and farmers come together so we can, and if we enforce our antitrust laws, we can balance the, the playing field and allow farmers to stay on their land, make a dime, and we can allow workers to uh, make an honest wage and uh, be respected in, in, in the dignity of work that they desire. Yeah, that uh, that company, uh, Smithfield, and uh, I know you actually visited uh, one of their uh, uh, plants uh, in South Dakota, which is one of the worst hotspots in the nation. I want to ask you about that in a second. But Smithfield is actually owned by China. 
I think it's the nation's largest uh, uh, pork producer here in the U.S., but it's a Chinese company. How would um, how would folks in Iowa feel, J.D., about breaking up the big ag monopolies? I, I suspect your uh, Republican governor, Kim Reynolds, uh, might not like it, but is it something that the smaller farmers and the producers and, yes, the, the workers in the region would actually benefit from? You, you know, it's something that... Uh I've been talking about last cycle and this cycle, and it's really the last couple of weeks where we've really gotten uh, the attention of uh, farmers who I would say traditionally don't give a crap about the Democratic candidate in, mm-hmm. this, this, mm-hmm. in this race. And I've had a number of Republican uh, agriculture, whether they're farm managers or actual farmers, reach out to me and say, hey, you're dead on on this issue. Thank you for, for saying something, because we all know King won't. Uh-huh. And uh, a lot of folks haven't been saying anything. And so uh, th- th- it's one of the, you know, a-, a lot of folks have questioned, like, oh, should you challenge the system if, if you're uh, uh, challenging an incumbent like that? Mm-hmm. And the thing is, absolutely, this, this system will benefit Iowa. And it's not only uh, will it help our farmers, it will help our rural communities. If we create this alternative local and regional food system for pennies on the dollar, it would create uh, so many... Uh, decent jobs in in rural Iowa that have really gone to the wayside, and and that's that's the one of the biggest uh, realities of this district is mm-hmm. you, this is the second most agriculture producing district in America. We have two farm to table restaurants in the entire district in all thirty nine counties. Mm. We have farmers not making a dime, and we have small towns losing their grocery stores to Dollar General who's coming in without any fresh produce or fresh meat. Mm. And so you scratch your head and you wonder, who are we doing this all for? <laughs> and it's what we've seen throughout uh, the past decade and, and change is that these packers, uh, their stock goes up and, and they continue to have low wages for their workers and they're squeezing farmers, and, but their stock and, and their stockholders mm-hmm. continue to make a good chunk of change. And when... They have that much power, and the monopoly power they have, they have power to influence Des Moines and D.C., and, yeah. and that's how policy is, is driven. And so we are, uh, this very much aligns not only with our people-powered movement, but it aligns with what our uh, forefathers, or founding fathers, uh, had when they were created the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson wanted a protection from monopolies to be a part of the First Amendment. And the Boston Tea Party was a rejection against the East Indian Trade Company because they felt that a concentration of power would hurt in ultimately the democracy. And so, uh, again, this is what we saw 100 years ago, and we're just, history's repeating itself. And, uh, and we've still got many of those laws on the books that we actually could use. Uh, but for some reason, uh, the power structure in D.C. chooses not to. Uh, J.D., I know you've been uh, uh, visiting. Well, you're in your district is sort of uh, near where, I guess, Iowa and Nebraska and South Dakota all sort of join together. And I know that you've uh, visited uh, across the river, I guess, in uh, the uh, Smithfield plant in South Dakota. Uh, what did you uh, what were you able to observe over there? Have have the conditions improved over the past week or two as as concerns have come to light and as these horrific numbers of sickened and and dead right. seem to keep rising? Right. It, and I went over to Dakota City, uh, Nebraska, where the oh, Nebraska. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, uh, where the Tyson plant is. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, uh, when I went over there, as I was going over there, there were two ambulances leaving the facilities. Jeez. And it was just, I mean, it was just exactly everything we thought of. And I didn't actually, uh, I wasn't able to go in, but I just going mm-hmm. from outside and just kind of seeing, uh, I mean, these folks who are working there, I mean, this is for 16 bucks an hour. Yeah. And it is grueling work. They're on their feet all day, and it, it's it's a tough job. And and it gets back to valuing work, valuing uh, uh, just the dignity of work. Yeah. And, and these uh, folks are, are helping us out in this community, and, and not all of them are from here. They've, they've escaped uh, some difficult situations down in Central America and, mm-hmm. and other places, and uh, one of the shining spotlights of the 4th District is Storm Lake, Iowa, where they, they're a, a, a meatpacking town, and they have uh, just really embraced their um, uh, the immigrant community, and they have over 17 languages being spoken at their high school right now. Hmm. And it, it's a beautiful community that has really just adapted with the time. And if they wouldn't have, they'd be on their last leg right now. And, and so... Um, it, it's just so much of this district uh, has just, we've seen better days. And you look back to when this district was at its best, it's when we've enforced our antitrust laws so farmers had a dime. It's when we uh, valued the dignity of work and, and people were able to have a healthy income and, and live a, a quality of life. And it's when we were able to take care of ourselves and people were able to go to hospitals and and the cost of mm-hmm. hospitals w- weren't skyrocketing as they are right now, and the accessibility was there as well. And and yet, uh, the state of Iowa, more and more these days, seems to keep voting uh, Republican. Iowa's Republican governor, Kim Reynolds, uh, has suggested that workers who refuse to show up for work, no matter the conditions at these plants, you know, because they are afraid of becoming uh, sick and dying, that they can be fired by these companies uh, and therefore would, would not be eligible for unemployment benefits in the state, essentially, you know, forcing these folks to uh, risk death for a paycheck. Has she been nearly as insistent with the companies that they clean up their acts and and actually follow the uh, CDC and OSHA guidance? Not at all. And if they get fired, they're able to get unemployment. Uh, but if they voluntarily quit, uh, mm-hmm. that's that's the term they're using. Uh-huh. They won't. And, I see. And it's, you sh- these people should not have to choose between staying healthy and a paycheck. It's so inhumane. And, and it's just, it's one of those things where uh, it's really cool to see the people getting behind these workers mm-hmm. and, and whether it's the unions, whether it's different activists, um, it's, we're very much uh, valuing these folks at, at this time. And I, it, it's awful that it's taken a pandemic uh, to do that, mm-hmm. but at the same time, in any time there's a crisis, there's also opportunity. So I'm, I'm hopeful on the other side of this, we really, really value uh, not only these employers or these employees, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, all, all the frontline uh, folks and, and workers that are the backbone of this country. And and I often quote uh, Sherrod Brown, and when you love your country, you're going to fight for the people who make it work. And whether it's the nurses, the doctors, uh, who are the frontline folks, or whether it's the 
uh, packing house patriots. Uh, these are the folks who, who we're fighting for. I, I've been uh, trying to understand uh, over the past week. I've been trying to make sense of this. And, and when I look at it and I see what's going on there, what is obviously going on in that area in Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, uh, it seems to me that not taking s- these measures to, you know, to make sure that the, the plants can both stay open but that workers can be safe that this ultimately only makes the situation worse. And it seems to me um, this would ultimately be much worse for the industry itself and therefore Iowa, Nebraska, and South Dakota in the long run. Why wouldn't the companies want to implement the CDC guidance at this point? Why wouldn't Republican governors like Reynolds in Iowa and Nome in South Dakota and Pete Ricketts in uh, uh, Nebraska, why wouldn't they want to mandate that? I, I mean... I know that, you know, normally they hate Republicans, they hate regulations because it shaves off, you know, uh, some profits from their big corporate industry donors and so forth. But here it seems like you could be killing the industry and the food supply itself, ultimately. I mean, do these governors actually believe, like Trump, that this will all just like go away like a miracle one day or as the weather warms? I mean, what are they thinking here, J.D.? I don't get it. I, I wish I had a clue on that, and it, it's it's just so inhumane. And, and what we're seeing, uh, Secretary Purdue came out today saying that it's going to be days, not weeks, for these plants to reopen. Huh. And w- what we saw here in Tyson just this past week, they, mm-hmm. they shut down the Dakota City uh, plant yesterday, or, or two days ago, I believe. Mm-hmm. But they were doing three days of testing, and three, so it would be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and... But these workers would still have to work, and they wouldn't find out their results for three days. That doesn't make any sense. What? And so it, it's, there's no leadership. There's no, uh, especially in the whole agriculture sector, you look at the milk dumping, and you look at all the mm-hmm. vegetables that have been bulldozed over because the supply chain is broken. Yep. And But then you see lines at... Uh, and, and 30 million Americans becoming unemployed. And so this is the leadership we need. We need a short-term plan to get from point A to point B with the food to get from the producers to people's mouths. Mm-hmm. And you know what? The system's not meant for it right now. I get that. And some of the processing, like the plants and stuff, are uh, we need to make sure the workers are safe. And so we, we can't do maximum output. I get that. But we need to have a temporary plan, and that's where I'm looking for the state Secretary of Agriculture and uh, and Sonny Purdue to step up, and then we need a plan to come out of this and to to go towards the future, and then we need our long term plan. It, it's it's one of those things where just the lack of leadership is really showing right now, and it's costing people's lives. And it doesn't matter if if Tyson gets hit a little bit uh, w- with money right now because that. I mean, they've been making ink for years. Yep. And and so we're all if we're all in this together, like they continually say, then we are all in this together, and we got to look out for each other has, because right now our governors are not. Has your Republican opponent Steve King spoken up about uh, his concerns uh, in these plants with these people, which are his voters who are you know getting sick and dying? Uh, has has he uh, taken any action out there? Uh, minimally, he he's he's t- more talked about the hogs that we've had to euthan- uh, euthanize uh, than anything. Mm-hmm. And 
I, I will say that he did meet with the uh, uh, one of the unions the, to talk to them about things. Good. And so, I mean, he's been one of the biggest anti-union people in D.C., so, so I, I mean, there, there's something about that. So, <laughs> so he, well, I, I'll say he could be doing a lot more. And honestly, like, that's what our campaign is having to fill some of the gaps because he, he does the very minimal mm-hmm. in the sense that, like, he put something on his website about where people can get information, and that's about it. So we have a in Iowa, six percent of our six uh, percent of our population is Latinx, mm-hmm. but over twenty five percent of the the folks who have tested positive are from that community. Mm. And so we realize there's not a lot of uh, resources in Spanish. And so not only did we on our uh, campaign uh, website have a COVID nineteen where people can get the resources. We have it in English and in Spanish. Mm. We also had a infectious disease doctor who's originally from Honduras uh, do a, a Q&A with a city council member from uh, Storm Lake uh, who uh, speaks fluent Spanish. Mm-hmm. And so we could, and we've really promoted that throughout the whole district. So these communities who, uh, even if they do speak English, just might be a little bit more comfortable in, in their native tongue, uh, were able to to. Uh, get some information out there. Uh, J.D. Shelton, let me ask you uh, two quick questions here before I have to let you go. Uh, in uh, 2018, you almost unseated uh, Steve King, uh, who is, for people who don't know, longtime, hard right. I think he served for nine terms in the U.S. House, if my math is right, uh, yep. representing what is regarded as a very deep red fourth congressional district in Iowa. You came within just uh, just under three and a half points of defeating Steve King in 2018 in the midterm elections uh, in the wake of intense criticism of his longtime white nationalistic tendencies. And I think that's a very nice way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- what uh, what makes you think you are more likely to unseat him this time around, as as you see it, in a state that went for Donald Trump by 10 points in 2016 uh, and in a district that went to Donald Trump by uh, 27 points uh, in the fourth district there? Yeah, there's, there's a couple things. One, we started from absolute scratch last time, and, and we were just this small uh, uh, grassroots campaign that has grown and grown and grown. And so when we launched this time, it's probably the only race in America where uh, the incumbent has a primary and the challenger doesn't. And so uh, he'll get out of his primary, mm-hmm. uh, and that's in a month. And uh, But currently, he only has $27,000 cash on hand, where we have uh, almost three-quarters of a million dollars cash on hand. Mm. So uh, we're uh, everything's night and day compared to two years ago. But the, big, the real big thing that will... I think is the factor that will bring us over the edge is that he got kicked off of his committees yep. for saying, when has white nationalism become a derogatory term? Right. And it just, even the Republicans in this district, in this state, uh, and nationally are done with him. And there's no Calvary that's going to come save them. And but, so uh, we're out here just like, uh, doing our grassroots thing mm-hmm. and uh, continually to adapt in these times, but uh, really we have an amazing volunteer base uh, that, uh, and if folks are interested, they can go to SholtonForIowa.com uh, to to help uh, if they're interested in volunteering or contributing. Um, and, so you think he's going to actually uh, be able to win his primary? Yeah. It, it, 
I, I haven't seen enough from any one of them. He has four opponents. They're going to split the anti-King vote. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely a strong uh, sentiment of anti-King uh, in the district amongst Republicans. But at the end of the day, uh, he has his base, and uh, uh, we're, we're uh, excited for the rematch. But the other yep. part of it, too, is uh, especially when it comes to Trump, this is the number one district in America that was affected by the, the trade war. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've mm-hmm. lost $588 million because of it uh, as of last fall. Mm-hmm. And even if this COVID-19 didn't happen, our, we have a depressed egg economy here, agriculture economy here, and there is so much opportunity for Democrats to come out and, and show farmers and people in these rural communities what you're all about mm-hmm. in uh, before we had to shut down, uh, we were just wrapping up our Don't Forget About Us tour. Where we were in 38 of the 39 counties, and we went into towns of under 1,000 people mm-hmm. and, and in these communities that have felt forgotten and uh, are very uh, agriculture-focused. And so we're out there with our uh, uh, message of America needs farmers and farmers need the antitrust. Very. And, and so... Uh, that's that's where we're at. So very we're, nice. Uh, we're we're excited. The uh, I know that uh, so you're running unopposed. The primary will be on June second, as I recall. Has the uh, has the state or the county uh, there made uh, adequate changes to elect uh, to change election procedures so that Iowa can vote safely in June? Is is no excuse absentee yep. voting now available in Iowa? So we uh, every registered voter has gotten a vote-by-mail or absentee ballot request form. Okay. And then they have to submit that to get the ballot. Now, we're one step away from where we want to be in, in making sure everyone gets a mail ballot, but mm-hmm. uh, at least that's better than nothing. And so um, uh, we're, we're doing, actually today, we're uh, doing a series of videos of making sure folks know what to do, uh, just to prepare them now and then, so we can be ready for the general election yep. when the time comes that if we have to do it uh, by mail, that making sure everyone knows what to do. Very good. J.D. Shelton, uh, Democratic candidate for the U.S. House in Iowa's 4th Congressional District, hoping to unseat Republican Steve King this year. You can get more information on uh, his campaign at Shelton, the number four, Iowa.com. And Shelton is spelled S-C-H-O-L. T-E-N, Shulton4Iowa.com, and you can find him on the Twitters at J.D. Shulton. J.D., really appreciate uh, you joining us today. Hope you'll come back in the future. Maybe we'll have some time to talk about uh, wind power in Iowa, which is also <laughs> huge and, uh, frankly, much more environmentally friendly than, uh, than meat packing. Thanks, J.D. <laughs> really, really appreciate your time here today. Thank you, Brad. All right, a quick break, and uh, speaking of... Uh, Well, uh, election changes in Iowa. We've got some election changes around the country, and some of them are good, some of them not so good. (laughs) That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. 
but we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. I haven't heard that in a while. Yep. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. My thanks again to J.D. Shulton for giving us uh, some of his time today. And as a meat eater, though a former vegetarian, I should point <laughs> out, I, I'm, uh, I'm, of course, worried about the food supply. But watching what is going on in these GOP-run states like Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, where they, like Trump, just, you know, sort of... Th- think this is all sort of going to vanish somehow it isn't I, I mean i don't know what they're thinking this seems like it is going to be very bad for them Yeah, and in fact all of the health experts i think with the exception of no one is <laughs> saying that yes this is going to last a while we need to mentally prepare for this to be around for at least another year if not two years if not possibly forever well, uh, in the background like like the influenza is well but you know they think they can just open up these plants and no this time we don't have to follow the cdc recommendations we'll just keep uh, somehow they're not going to increase the number of infections and deaths, but uh, maybe, you know, as uh, J.D. notes, so many of the workers are Latino and from other countries, maybe not enough of them are actually voters for those particular governors to give a damn if they die. Or they're Democratic voters, so they really don't give a damn if they die. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard not to think that when you look, for example, at a state like Georgia, where 80 percent of those now infected with covid are African-Americans, 80 percent in a city with a, a, a big African-American population. Yes, but not that big, not 80 percent big. I think it's less than 40 percent or so of the population in Atlanta. So that state's illegitimate Republican Governor Brian Kemp, he was among the last in the nation to issue a stay-at-home order, and then he was the first in the nation to fling open the doors to restaurants and barbershops and gyms and nail salons. And, well, who cares how many people get sick if 80% of them are black, I guess. People are going to die. But, you know, maybe they're disproportionately people that Governor Kemp in Georgia just doesn't give a damn if they do. And maybe that's the case up there in Iowa and in South Dakota and Nebraska with Pete Ricketts. (sighs) Anyway. Well, just to say, it would not be the first time that oligarchs don't care anything about the workers who ensure their profits. It wouldn't be the first. Well, if all their workers die, they're not going to have any profits. Just saying. 
Anyway, happy to hear from uh, uh, J.D. Uh, uh, Shelton about that uh, and that and that Iowa will be at least sending absentee ballot applications to all registered voters in the state. That's good news. We have been covering uh, how some of the 20 or so states around the country are preparing to hold their upcoming primary elections amid the coronavirus and how they hope to keep voters safe in those elections. At least uh, some of them who hope to keep voters safe in those elections and then in all 50 states this November. Louisiana is one of a handful of states that still force all voters at the polling place to vote on 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems incredibly enough and I mean that was incredible enough given the unverifiability and insecurity of those type of systems before the virus outbreak now it's just insane given that these machines are now vectors for a deadly disease frankly they should be taken out just for that alone at this point but uh, but anyway don't worry Louisiana's very heavily Republican majority state legislature, they are on the job with uh, several upcoming elections. According to The Advocate, an emergency plan for Louisiana's delayed spring elections was approved by the state legislature after Republican lawmakers rolled back an expansion of mail-in ballots for people concerned about the coronavirus this week. The State House and Senate both approved the revised plan crafted by Republican Secretary of State Kyle Ardwin, even as a contingent of GOP lawmakers sought to block even the revised plan because they believed it still featured too much access to mail-in ballots. We need to send them to the polling places to get uh, diseases on the touchscreen machines used across the entire state. You can't have too much access to the ballot. Well, that's just right out. Uh, but to a safe ballot, to an absentee mail ballot. Yeah, no, we don't want to have that. So the House approved this uh, new measure on a 62 to 39 vote. And the Senate, this is Louisiana State, Senate voted 31 to 8. And so how did they approve this plan to restrict mail-in ballots to their voters while they were observing social distancing measures? Well, according to The Advocate, lawmakers voted by mail mm. on the emergency plan. After which the uh, Secretary of State called it, quote, pragmatic and a temporary response to the pandemic. Arduin originally worked with uh, Democratic Governor John Bell Edwards on the emergency plan, and he settled on an expansion. Now, the, what they had settled on initially was okay. They settled on an expansion of mail-in ballots to those 60 or older, which, by the way, on its own, as we discussed on our previous broadcast with uh, legal journalist Mark Joseph Stern, is likely unconstitutional. It's likely a violation of the 26th Amendment as a group in Texas is now suing, claiming that it abridges the votes of those between the ages of 18 and 59, in, in this case, in Louisiana. Uh, also, mail-in ballots would have been available to those uh, su uh, subject to a stay-at-home order, those unable to appear in public due to concern of exposure or transmission of COVID-19, which would just have been about everybody, or those caring for a child or grandchild whose school or child care provider is closed because of the virus. But that was no good for state Republican lawmakers in Louisiana. So those reasons, all of them that I just mentioned, they were all stripped out of the new plan. Uh, 
Now, it only applies to the so far to the July and August elections there, but it could also be the foundation for the November presidential elections, depending on where we are by then. Under the plan that passed both chambers, people who would have access to mail-in ballots include those at higher risk because of serious medical conditions. So I guess you have to get permission from your doctor that you've got a serious medical condition. Those subject to medically necessary quarantine or isolation orders. Those advised by a health provider to self-quarantine. Those experiencing symptoms of COVID-19 and seeking a medical diagnosis or those caring for someone who is subject to a quarantine order and has been advised to self-quarantine. So now, mind you, if you're experiencing symptoms of COVID-19, you may not be experiencing those symptoms at the time that you have to uh, ask for your absentee ballot. Details, schmeetails. Everyone else, get in line. Long lines. Long lines at the polling place. Because they use touchscreen voting systems in Louisiana at the polls and good luck not catching a deadly virus when you're forced to vote on one of those systems in the upcoming July or August elections and and probably in November as well. Got concerns about that? No worries. You can just, uh, well, I don't know, send in some snail mail to the legislature and maybe they'll eventually read it and they'll give a damn because, you know, that's how they vote by mail, just not you. The revisions to the original plan came after uh, uh, state Senate Republicans rejected the expansion of mail-in ballots, claiming it would invite fraud into the elections. That message, which was promoted by Donald Trump, who recently used a mail-in ballot himself to vote in Florida, was uh, echoed by uh, the Louisiana state uh, GOP. Nonetheless, I'm happy to see the advocate notes that fact checkers, election experts and studies have repeatedly shown that the risk of fraud, including with mail in ballots, is very low. Although I will note it is higher with uh, mail in ballots than it is at polling uh, at polling places. But as long as they're going to force people to use touchscreens in Louisiana. Yes, everyone should vote by mail in Louisiana. Democrats in the state legislature uh, called for broader access to mail-in ballots for people concerned about the coronavirus. But, you know, like in Texas, the state of Texas said, nope, fear of coronavirus is not a good enough reason to ask for an absentee ballot. It's not a good enough excuse. They were sued and the plaintiffs won. But the Republican attorney general in Texas uh, vows to appeal that case. So I suspect uh, had they uh, passed something like that uh, here, well, actually, they have passed something that doesn't allow fear of coronavirus. So uh, prepare to be sued, Louisiana. I'm sure you got plenty of money to uh, spend on defending yourself, right? Both Republicans and Democrats in Louisiana said they wanted to avoid holding elections like Wisconsin, which in early April had moved forward with its presidential primary in the midst of a pandemic. And yet, as far as I can tell, they appear to be doing it anyway. But they put something in place, and uh, that something, uh, I guess Republicans feel that uh, now the courts 
won't mandate what they need to do because they've decided a plan, even though it's a plan that's going to end up killing people most likely. And can I just note for the record no, again? No, you cannot. All <laughs> I'm right, going go to anyway yes. right. how important state legislative elections are. Oh, yeah. It really does make a difference who is in your state legislature. They have much control over your life and your ability to vote. So, yeah. yeah. Which, by the way, I think is why, oh, just one of the reasons why Louisiana votes in off years, if I'm not mistaken. I think they held their... Uh, state legislative races in 2019 because that's lower fewer people vote exactly yeah. and then you end up with the republican majorities all right uh some better news however in the state of pennsylvania and yes it looks like it's going to be a state by state county by county slog street fight yeah to fight not not for who wins and loses but for who gets to vote and if they get to vote in a way that won't kill them well, Pennsylvania is another state that uh, previously forced most of the state voters to vote on uh, touchscreen voting systems. They've moved, at least in some places, to paper in, in some of the counties across the state. More recently, hand-marked paper ballots. But some of the counties are sticking with touchscreen voting systems, or they were planning to, including Philadelphia, by the way. And I think Philadelphia... The most uh, democratic part of the of the state is still planning to go with unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. But a couple of other counties appear to have come to their senses this week as the Meadville Tribune. I think it's Meadville could be Medville. I think it's Mid Meadville Tribune uh, reports it will be paper ballots at Crawford County's polling precincts during Pennsylvania's primary election. Now scheduled for June 2, Crawford County Board of Elections members voted unanimously this week to move a uh, to move to a paper ballot format due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Good. Apparently, Crawford County doesn't want their voters to die while voting. <clears throat> the Tribune uh, notes that the switch will allow for a less for less potential spread of the virus than using the electronic voting machines. That, according to the board members, the electronic voting machines would require cleaning of touchscreens after each use by a voter, which could slow the process. Oh, could. do you think? Yeah. yeah, just a little. Also, by the way, the particular machines that they use in Crawford County, the touchscreen ballot marking devices, well, that they had planned to use in Crawford County for all voters at the polls is the same one used across the state, the entire state of Georgia which the lawsuit that we recently reported on there in Georgia to prevent their use uh, of those systems this year, charging that they are disease vectors, among other problems, notes that uh, these machines, the same ones that are, were set to use in Crawford, made by Dominion Voting, the Canadian company which makes the ImageCast BMD voting system, they explain in their documentation that before cleaning the machines, you must turn them off. Turn them off, clean them, and then reboot them. So, yeah, that could slow things down a little. You think? Each of the county's 68 precincts still in Crawford County, Pennsylvania, will still have an electronic voting machine to comply. They'll have one to comply with federal handicapped accessibility laws, as Meadville Tribune describes it. That according to the director of the county's election and voter services office. See? Was that hard? One machine for people who choose to use it because they need to use it for any given reason. 
But then, uh, so no, that's not hard. Everyone else votes on hand-marked paper ballots. So uh, here's here, the article explains the complicated way that voters at polls in Crawford County will now have to vote. I'm glad they make this clear because it's very, very, very difficult. Under the new system, poll workers will give a registered voter a paper ballot and a pen to cast their vote. The voter then will deposit the paper ballot into a locked bin at the precinct. That's impossible to follow. Got that? I know. Do you want to write that down? I'll wait if you need to jot any of these complicated (laughs) instructions down. After the polls close at 8, the secured ballots will then be taken to the Crawford County Courthouse, where they'll be put through a high-speed central scanner at a designated time by the Board of Elections officials. So that part's not great because we can't know if the scanner counted the ballots accurately unless humans actually bother to count those ballots with their own eyes. But at least we know we will have a record of voter intent. We can never have that with a touchscreen voting machine of any type, including the ones that, you know, computer mark a so-called paper ballot record. So good news for Crawford voting. The uh, Crawford County Board of Elections reminds the county's registered voters that they have the option to apply for a mail-in or absentee ballot instead of doing any of that at all. Pennsylvania changed their law late last year to allow no excuse absentee voting for all. So, yes, you don't even need to go into the to the precinct to do that. Voters can contact the uh, county election uh, uh, websites or the state, they may visit at votespa.com. That's votespa.com to apply for a mail-in ballot online. Mail-in or absentee uh, ballot requests must be received uh, no later than uh, 5 p.m. on May 26. That's across the entire state of Pennsylvania. So uh, hopefully our uh, our listeners in Pennsylvania and uh, WLRI and Lancaster are paying attention May 26 is the last chance to uh, get an absentee ballot for the upcoming primary. Also, the last day to register to vote at all, by the way, in the primary is May 18. So you need to do that as well. If you haven't done that already, May 18, you can go again to votespa.com or votespa.com. So that's one county. The other county that is doing uh, the same thing, Luzerne County. The difference there is they will give you a pen that you get to keep. Apparently. Okay. So uh, well done, Luzerne County and Crawford County in Pennsylvania. Now, if uh, the rest of the state will figure it out, hello, Philly, then maybe we can save some lives. Quick break, and we are back with uh, a song that we could use, a little smile here at the end of the week. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Rainbow. Yes. That must be. Hey, welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That must mean it's time. Uh, we got another Randy Rainbow song. Yes. Let's do it. Crank it up. When viral symptoms underlie, there are home remedies to try. You find the one that works and snap, you're safe. And 
every product neath your sink might be a medicine to drink. No need for tests, the president suggests. Right, and then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection? Add a spoonful of Clorox makes your temperature go down. Your temperature go down. Temperature go down. Just a spoonful of Clorox makes your temperature go down. It's the latest COVID craze. Supposing we hit the body with whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. A politician who distracts has very little time for facts. The scientists he's hired are perplexed. While Dr. Birx is about to barf and hang herself with her own scarf, <laughs> he diatribes and recklessly prescribes. It sounds, sounds interesting to me. That some pledge on your pancakes makes coronavirus pass. Coronavirus pass. If it gives you gas, try some bleach in your beer and shove a flashlight up your <laughs> Heal yourself with UV rays. Our president is no MD. He only plays one on TV. But of medical advice, he's always full. A little draino in your cup will clear your sinuses right up. And quench your thirst unless it kills you first. Slap your mom with a swiffer till her temperature goes down. Her temperature goes down, temperature goes down. Spray your boyfriend with Lysol till he's six feet underground. It's the latest movie craze. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. I'm not a doctor. Since it's improbable, you'll win with your hydroxychloroquine. Splash some Windex in your wine and you'll resolve. And you won't likely get a pill from Dr. Oz or Dr. Phil. There's no, there's no vaccine. Vaccine. So try some Mr. Clean. Sounds interesting to me. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. I'm not a doctor. You're kidding. (laughs) (laughs) The great Randy Rainbow. I needed that. Hope you did, too. (laughs) Got to get out. Thanks to our producer, Desi Doyne, and my guest today, J.D. Shulton, Democratic candidate for Iowa's 4th Congressional District, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That service made available by those of you who uh, help keep us going. Thank you by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you very much. All right, drop me an email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And I'll be on the Facebooks and the Twitters, whether you like it or not, at the Brad Blog. Come find me there until you find me here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Seriously down. Just a
less interesting to me. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. I'm not a doctor. You're kidding.